Hello and welcome to episode 67 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray at the controls and ready for our weekly dive into the rabbit holes that get less coverage elsewhere in the game. Now, almost everybody's talking about Bryson DeChambeau this week, but not us. Instead, we're going to dip into the grab bag of bigger issues confronting the game, and it's a perennial topic that we'll be chatting out today, public golf and its role in communities. As we've said many times on this very show, public golf has no inherent right to exist, and like all other activities that occupy public space, it needs to make its case. Well, today, with the special, with the help of special guest, Dr. Brad Stenner from the University of South Australia, we are going to contribute to making that case. Dr. Stenner along in just a moment. But first, my co-host on this weekly adventure, Adrian Logue, saw some excellent photos from you over the weekend out at Bonnie Doon for the Players Series Tournament. Looked like, was it as much fun as it looked like, I should say? Yeah, it was a great event out there. Um, and talk about, you know, golf being for everybody, uh, those events really exemplify that with the men and the women playing together for the same prize. And then on the weekend, they get the juniors out there, the mm, junior boys and girls. And, uh, I was going to ask about that. You, you yeah, followed around yesterday. I, no, I didn't I didn't go out there yesterday. I was out on Friday. Friday. Yeah. Uh, so, oh, you weren't there yesterday. I thought you were. Didn't you t- text me and say you were going and then abuse me for not going and then you decided not I to felt, go yourself? I felt abandoned. So, I didn't <laughs> I didn't go in the end. There you go. No, terrific event. I really like the idea of that. I think there's real potential for that as a format that gets us a that maintains 72 hole stroke play for professional play, but brings something extra to the table. And it gives all of those younger players and and the the LET players and the WPGA players who don't get to play in a lot of big events, bigger events. Uh, gives them exposure to television and that sort of thing as well, getting interviewed and the chance to learn the craft. That's right. And the craft of professional golf is less about the golf and more about yep. all that extraneous stuff. That's so. right. And all the people involved in it, like you know, you've got Warren Smith out there mm-hmm. um, doing the commentary and Who's great member. I didn't get job. to hear any of was it, but I imagine tremendous, it would have been fabulous, tremendous job. And then you know he's out there interviewing some of these young players, which is great for them. Absolutely. Um, same with you and Porter, who we've had on the podcast and everything. It was, it's a really good scene. And the golf course was fantastic as well. Some of the best par fours, short par fours in Australia, yeah. I think, at Bonnie Doon. Scoring was crazy. Andrew Martin, four eagles on the front nine. Yeah. You'd yep. walk off, wouldn't you? If, you? if that happened to you, if you managed that as an amateur, you'd leave, you're would you not going to ruin that with a back nine. You just walk off right there and then. <laughs> no. <I'm> done. <laughs> no, it can only get worse from <laughs> there, can't exactly it? But right. it's, <laughs> yeah. It's for a pro, I guess. They're thinking fifty nine at that point, but oh, know, absolutely! You'd been a fifty seven watch. I would have thought fifty nine yeah. would have seemed disappointing. As he interesting made mindset, just yeah. to assume the hammer's not going to come down on you, isn't it? Indeed, it could get better. Indeed, and in the background, Spieth is in with another chance to win. So we've got the TV on again. This is a rarity for us on a Monday. But is that enough of all that? We've got a guest waiting on the other end. We must bring him in. Uh, the player series obviously is professional golf at a private golf club. What about recreational golf on public land? Is there a place for it in our modern urban environments? And what factors need to be considered to help make that case? Surely health is one, and particularly targeted health outcomes in specific segments of the population. Dr. Brad Stenner is a lecturer in the Occupational Therapy Program at the University of South Australia and the program lead on the Invictus Pathways Program, which we will need to to perhaps explain once we bring him into the conversation. More importantly for our purposes, Dr. Stenner has an interest in golf and its role in health, particularly in ageing populations. Brad Stenner, appreciate you taking some time. Thanks for coming along. Apologies for the long intro where you just had to sit and listen there. I hope it wasn't too boring for you. Did I get your intro right? You did. Thanks, Rod, and thanks very much uh, for having me on. It was uh, great to catch up about the weekend's events. Like you say, a, a great spectacle for Australian golf with 
lots of our golfers not being able to travel and playing European or Asian tours. So to see the men, women, um, and also the big inclusive event that happened up in Queensland was was great to see it on the telly and, and getting good coverage. Yeah, couldn't agree more. The other thing, of course, that it does do, which is great and we often don't think about, the chance for youngsters to get out and watch some of these players up mm-hmm. close. I think you were there Friday. Like, I think yep. you could walk the fairways like the Vic Open. Mm-hmm. There is no better way to watch golf and experience professional golf up close than the opportunity to just stand behind these guys on the fairways, listen to the discussions with the caddies, see the lies up close. Golf might be one of the worst television sports of all, I reckon. Unless you've played, Mm. it makes no sense on television at all. And the thing you get with juniors out on the course following some of the professionals playing, you see them uh, when there's no ropes, you see them run up to where the divot was taken and go and have a look at the divot (laughs) after they've had it or pick up their tee. And the players are great (laughs) for the most part. They talk to the kids and they give them golf balls and gloves and all that sort of stuff. So fantastic. All of which I guess, Brad Stenner, is pretty important. Let's establish your biases first. You are a golfer is the first thing we have to say, correct? Yeah, absolutely. have to declare my bias. I'm a long-time golfer, uh, like, like most of us, I guess, Started out on, on public links with my grandfather and, and he taught me how to play the game. Uh, growing up here in Adelaide, there's a, a cracking little par three course within the CBD. I think most holes are about 50 or 60 metres, but that's where I grew up with my grandfather. And I've been very fortunate to travel around the country, play on some fantastic uh, country tracks down in the southeast, like Mount Gambier and Narracourt, uh, and then up to Darwin, and then now back in Adelaide, where I've been for the last. 17 or 18 years. Um, so, yeah, very much a golfer. Declare my bias in my opinions and also my research. Uh, but, yeah, um, very much enjoying the, the great game that, as my research is showing, is, is really the game that we can play across our lifespan. And it's one of the most adaptable and, and inclusive uh, sports games in the world, really. I can't think of another one that comes close, I'll be honest mm-hmm. with you. Uh, and the more I think about it, the more important that seems to be. And it's one of the things we don't talk about. It really is. Well, let's start with this. So, so I think Tell us what the, your studies are focused on particularly because, I'll be honest, I'm not a great reader of academic studies. I skipped straight to the conclusions of the stuff that you sent us, and the conclusions are interesting. But what was the, what was the impetus? What were you trying to do uh, and what, what, were you, what were you looking to find out? Yeah, sure. So the Golf and Health Project started out of the UK uh, by Dr. Roger Hawkes, who's the ex-chief medical officer of the European Tour, uh, and his colleagues, Andrew Murray, and the physio team really out of uh, out of the UK. And I stumbled across this group via an email when I was starting my PhD and found that there was a, a growing consensus that golf needed to demonstrate its contribution to the health and well-being of its participants and really start to break down some of the myths uh, and misconceptions about golf. So my journey from a research point of view started uh, in 2014, when I was really looking at the most popular sports for older adults in Australia, and golf was far and away number one, and then started to look at the literature and, and see or try and find what were the reasons why older people were playing and whether that was any different to any of the other sports they might have played, such as swimming, tennis, uh, you know, lawn bowls. What we immediately found was there was no literature around the reasons why older golfers played and then the the benefits they obtained from doing so. So my first study was really about identifying why older golfers play. And it was interesting that the physical health aspect was not one of the most important ones. The really social networks, the community support, 
and the mental health and well-being were the three big factors that came out very early on, which was quite interesting for me because we assumed that most people were interested in a, in a physical health point of view, but that's not what we found at all early on. It's almost a bit like kids and vegetables, isn't it? Uh, it's a The health thing is a byproduct of the enjoyment of the pursuit. It's sort of you can convince kids that vegetables are lollies, they'll eat them by the truckload and it'll be good for them, but they don't realise that that's what you're doing. There's a bunch of interesting stuff about that, Brad, and I suppose the first one is one that I like to harp on about here, and that's the stereotypes around golf outside of golf. I think it can be difficult sometimes for us from within the game to understand how these images seem to keep persisting. When you started back in 2014, that was clearly uh, one of the things at the top of mind. Were you receiving that feedback from non-golfers about golf and you as a golfer were saying, well, hang on, you've got it all wrong? Because I find that's what I seem to be doing a lot of the time. Absolutely. I think that's that's a perception that golf has struggled with over many, many years. I think personally there's a, there's a couple of reasons for that. I, I think first of all, um, there's high-profile people over the years that, that tend to be in go- uh, involved in golf, own golf courses or get out and play, and we, we see them on the media all the time. So we automatically assume that everyone that plays golf is, is like that. And secondly, I think there's, there's a lot of beautiful facilities that the public aren't aware of or aren't able to get access to. So the exclusive private clubs, and, and they are in, in, in all capital cities, but that's not where the majority of golfers play. So, yes, there's this group of elite golf clubs that, um, you know, there's no way around it. It does cost quite a bit of money to join there and play there. But in my experience, that's the minority. And the majority of the golf clubs are, or golf courses are available to whoever wants to come and play. And, and I think that's golf as an industry, I think, needs to do better at demonstrating that that's where the majority of people can go and play rather than these exclusive few golf courses that exist in, in most capital cities. And golf as a an amorphous mass, we've done a terrible job, haven't we, of selling the game uh, to the general public. And the mere fact that you couldn't find research when you went looking for it tells you golf is not telling its own story well. No, and as you said earlier, I think that's very much those that are involved in the game know that, the, the public perception is, is not accurate, but it is incumbent on us within the industry, whether that we're, um, you know, course designers, whether we're, you know, working for GA or the state-based associations, whether we're members, whether we're public or private golf um, players, it is incumbent on us to actually spread that message about public golf, uh, how inclusive the sport is, and the many opportunities that it provides people to engage in physical activity Some of the initial studies we found were that um, in country areas, and and we research both city and country areas, is that people are really happy to go and walk eight or ten kilometres around their their local golf club, really, you know, chasing a little white ball around. But they're not going to go in the gym for five or six hours a week. They're not going to go and walk their dog for eight or ten kilometres a week. But they're really happy to do that physical activity in the process of playing golf. So it is one of those sports where you do get your dose of physical activity each week, but you tend not to notice it whilst you're going because you're engaging in the game of golf, you're chatting with your mates or friends. Uh, it really is physical activity that happens as you're doing something else, which, which really is you know, encouraging for a whole range of people when they're actually trying to play the game. 
Yeah, indeed. All of which, of course, it goes without saying, as long as you're not in a golf cart. People, get out of golf carts if you can at all and walk the game. It is better in every way, and not just for your health. It's a better way to experience the game. It's the way the game is designed to be played. You approach greens from the place that they're supposed to be approached from, or fairway to the front, leading in, and all those other things that are subtle, but maybe don't make, don't, uh, don't make themselves obvious. While Brad's talking there, Adrian, it strikes me that uh, that incidental, um, notion of exercise without sort of necessarily meaning to do it. One of the things those people also wouldn't do apart from go and walk the dog is go and walk in a park that used to be a golf course Mm. to get their exercise. And this is the proposition that's being put by people, certainly here in Sydney, about more park. Cut it in half, make half of it a park, and then it's available for everybody. What you're actually doing there is taking exercise away from a bunch of people based on Brad's study to supposedly maybe give it to some others. There just doesn't seem much sense in it, does there? Yeah, my my very unacademic analysis of walking in the park is that you typically do it a lot slower and a lot less focused and meandering and- And usually under duress, let's be honest, <laughs> from, from somebody else who wants to go walking in the park. <laughs> <laughs> um, As a golfer, you're not so, walking in a park, are you? And without thinking, gee, exactly. put a golf hole here, this would be much better. Yeah. Uh, look, I think it's something to do with that little bit of that gambler's mindset that gets your hooks into you with golf, that it keeps you interested in what's going to come next. And it just it mm-hmm. propels you forward and that's you don't you don't notice what's how far you're walking because you're thinking about what's going to come next and what's the next roll of the dice going to deliver for me when I stand over the ball and can I recover from what I'm doing there? And it just propels you forward and it's it maintains your interest for- Even you know, though statistically those, the those answers keep coming back, no, you're not going to succeed. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you, you exactly. Continue. There so, is a real gambler's mindset to golf, to, though, well, and, I, and I think that's yeah, absolutely. the part of what makes it that incidental exercise is that you, you just don't mind what's happening around you because you propelled forward to get to that next shot. I did a copy and paste, Brad. I'm going to read this to you, and then I want to get some of your thoughts on one of these things, uh, some of these things that we've just sort of been talking about. Golf is the most popular organised sporting activity for older adults in Australia, according to the Australian Sports Commission 2016, and as such is a popular form of physical activity. Participation by older adults, adults has remained steady over the past decade, despite a decline in golf participation overall. In Australia, less than 5% of the population play golf, and golfers aged under 55, over 55 years, sorry, account for more than half of all players. This is probably too direct. This is the tabloid newspaper hacking me coming out. Why is Clover Moore here in Sydney targeting our older populations to take exercise away from them? Uh, that's kind of going to be the effect, isn't it? As people in council, I don't. I think that's probably an unintended consequence of what she's campaigning for. But is this not the sort of thing that councils need to think about with their public golf facilities? If they decide to close them, the people they are affecting most are those people in the community who most of them will proudly stand up and say they're trying to do the most to help stay healthy into later life. Yeah, absolutely. I think that particularly after the last 12 months that we've had around the world, I think – taking opportunities for physical activity away from those that perhaps don't have other opportunities or are less likely to engage in, in physical activity, I think is the last thing that we're wanting to be do uh, be doing. I think there is a perception around the large open green spaces that have 18 holes of whether it's public golf or, or 18 hole full courses that if you drive past and you don't see anybody on the golf course, you think, oh, well, hang on a minute, what's all this large green space and why isn't it being utilised? I think when you, you know, the 
the Sydney golf course in, in question, what was I think it was 60,000 rounds right. a year? <laughs> you can't um, drive past there and find a day where there's nobody on it, I can assure you, Brad. It is exactly. full yeah, sun so up to sundown. You could make the same case about other green space, though, whether it's parkland or you know tennis courts or whatever, and I'm certainly not suggesting that we, we rip those up as well because they're not being used, but I think with the the need for people as they get older to engage in whatever physical activity they possibly can, and any physical activity is good physical activity, mm-hmm. to take away those opportunities is is really, it doesn't make sense, either from a health point of view or a golf point of view, that the last thing we want to do is take opportunities away for physical activity. Now, again, it's, it's not just about the physical activity. It is about mental health and community well-being as well that lots of these golf courses actually, you know, they're like the old sporting clubs that we used to grow up in and and families mix there. You know, mum and dad might be having a meal, but the kids are running around playing a bit of golf or whatever it might be. You get a lot of support through your local golf community uh, that that you don't you don't necessarily get anywhere else. So I, I get the, the point about these large green open spaces and perhaps being underutilised, maybe, uh, but they are they are community clubs that help support both the physical health but also the mental health of those participants in that area. And I, and I think that is really um, an important aspect of golf that, again, needs to be communicated better. It's great we're having a chat today about it, that, that these, these provide or these um, places provide a spot for people to come together, um, share good things about what's happening, share things that might be not so good in their lives, but are generally a community and, and social places where people get together. And I think that's really important uh, as, as we move on and, and as people get older is they've got the opportunity to get together. I think most of us as golfers probably know somebody for whom if you took golf out of their life, it would be much, much, much worse. I've got a mate I know who, without golf, may no longer be with us. That's yeah. quite possible. Well, I think that was the subject of one of your papers, isn't it, Brad? That Well, it's, it's one of the conclusions I got from reading one of those papers was that uh, if not for golf, a lot of golfers would be in poor health. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the study from – or the study that one goes back to is the Swedish study, which – you know, associates golf with living longer. So those that, that play golf tend to live longer than those that don't. But as we've been collecting the data from around the world, we do get a, a much better picture that from a mental health point of view, getting out and playing golf, Roger alluded to, you know, walking. Walking is much better than than not walking. But there's there's loads of people that we see every week that if it wasn't for a golf cart, they wouldn't perhaps be able to go and walk 18 holes or perhaps not walk nine holes. But then being able to use the, the golf cart actually gets them out doing a little bit of physical activity and catching up with their mates. And the, and the evidence tells us that it is much better for mental health. Uh, but also, you know, anecdotally, I've got mates as well that, that perhaps wouldn't be with us um, if it wasn't for the friendships and mateships that they've established through their golf courses and golf clubs over the years that they've been playing. So it is really vitally important for mental health as well. Yeah, indeed. Which brings me to this point, Brad. Is it not the responsibility in that case of 
government at all levels, but particularly councils who are responsible for the bulk of public golf, do they not actually have a responsibility in that case to promote the game and particularly to the older demographic rather than decide that it looks like, as you said, open green space just going to waste, let's do something else with it. I would say that they have a responsibility, as they have a responsibility to promote all forms of sport, golf no less than others. Yep, absolutely. I agree 100%, whether that's um, from a from a council level, whether that's a golf club level or whether that's, you know, bigger picture, Golf Australia and other organisations, it really is incumbent on us as an industry to promote the benefits of golf promote the inclusivity of golf and promote access to golf. We've, with the Golf and Health Project, we've got support from the RNA. Uh, so the highest level of golf were recognising that we needed to do more as that and, that, and they've helped fund some studies in the UK. So I think it is very much around a promotion aspect, but, but you need the data, you need the evidence to back that up. And that's where the Golf and Health Project around the world and the work that I'm doing here with colleagues in Melbourne is trying to provide Golf Australia public golf courses with the evidence so that then when they go out and make a statement about how good it is to play, the benefits of playing, or the need to perhaps invest in programs that allow other people to take up the game of golf, they've got high-level evidence behind them and they're not making statements that they can't justify. And that's really the big impetus of the of the Golf and Health Project is to give people in, in council or government information that they can be confident about when they stand up and make statements. It's encouraging, Adrian, to see golf, and we keep using the term as some amorphous blob of golf as though it has some public front-facing, but see golf getting on the front foot. It's been we don't do enough of it in golf, do we? But mm. are we moving quickly enough or aggressively enough? One of the things we do know is that for every golf course that closes, it never comes back. Mm. If if Clover Moore's intent is to be seen here in Sydney and Moore Park, you know, nine of those holes are closed. They will never come back. That's right. Well, I mean, with the kind of exception, I guess, of Victoria Park getting replaced by Cannon Hill in Brisbane. It's not a like-for-like. Like, it's there, not a like-for-like. There are for issues like, no. around that yeah. that don't make themselves obvious at the start. We, I think we now know why that Victoria Park is to do with the Olympic bid. Oh, clearly. Well, that, clearly. Oh, oh, I didn't know. Oh, well, you've got to assume, don't you? It's right in the middle of the city. Um, that would be my take on it, that that was part of that Olympic bid process. But replacing a, an urban golf course with a suburban golf course mm-hmm. Does not. It's not ideal. Yeah, no, every does not city achieve. and something like Moore Park. You know, banging on about that quite a lot. But so we should. That it's important. That is one of the the most sort of complete. It's it's high. It's a pretty high quality golf course. Absolutely. So close to one of the world's major CBDs. Mm-hmm. That's the sort of asset that Sydney should be mm-hmm. um, trumpeting from the rooftops Absolutely. about. Like it's an incredible asset for the city, and uh, yeah. Yeah, all of those, even 60,000 rounds a year, you could potentially say it's under underutilised a little bit. And all of those residences that Clovermore points to across the other side supposedly looking out wantonly, unable to get access to the golf course, can actually just walk across the street. Yeah, they can play golf. And play the game. <laughs> yeah. Sample right. the game. That's right. And look, I, we do need to do a little bit more imaginative things, I think, where, you know, golfers aren't going to be out on certain holes from four o'clock onwards and you know what what would be wrong with having some safe way for the public to get out onto a few holes and just muck around and throw a frisbee or walk the dog or something share like the that. space share the space. share the public space for and just golf yeah. I, i'm sure that's 
possible at Moore Park and the battle isn't over there. They need to continue to think of ways to um, proactively head off the next battle there. But, yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things out of Brad's studies is uh, this number of about only about 5% of Australia's population play golf. I say only 5%. It's you know, it's very high significant participation number of people, yeah. sport. But worldwide, in similar similarly developed countries, the number's more like 8%, I think. Is that right, Brad? Yeah, it is. And I, and I think particularly throughout Europe and the US that that number is, is higher. Uh, and I, I, we don't know the exact reason for it. it I think GA ha- over the last few years have made great strides in making the game in- more inclusive. There's the, the, the Give Golf a Go program for children, for women, for older adults, for people with a disability. So I, I think the investment that GA have made and also individual clubs around the country, I, I think we're on an upward trajectory and certainly the, the numbers indicate that, that golf was even more popular last year because it was one of the few sports that we were able to, to um, play during the COVID lockdowns in various states. So I think golf is on an upward trajectory. It really is how we tap into those groups of the population that perhaps haven't been exposed to golf before or may have given it a go you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago and thought, oh, it's not really for me. It's, it's how do we get those people back? And I think for me the, the key market is, yes, it's kids, but it's also around those those middle ages where perhaps adults are not able to play other sports they might have played before, whether that's football or netball or cricket or whatever it might be, and, and get them to come across to the game of golf that they can continue to play for another 20, 30, 40 years uh, and really start to build uh, participation from underneath rather than just relying on the older age group uh, that we traditionally have here in Australia. It's one of the mistakes golf makes, isn't it? And I think probably most industries have a similar sort of an outlook. This this absolute, almost overwhelming desire to attract young people constantly. Young people, young people, young people. Government young funding people, tends people. to Government funding that. goes that way. And you're right, juniors are sort of important. But golf's an interesting one, isn't it, Brad? And Adrian and I were just talking about this before we started. The, the pattern tends to be that you discover golf as a kid or in your teenage years. You play it and you enjoy it, et cetera, et cetera. You go off and discover beer and cigarettes and you know, women and marriage and kids and work and all those things, but you're in a position to come back to the game at that 40 to 50 age bracket when life changes again and kids yeah. leave home and those sorts of things. And all of those things, of course, are true for women as well. Of course, yeah, of course, <laughs> true for women. The beer and the myself, of course, and- yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, but th- that is what we seem to in golf. I think we sort of miss we miss that market we, if we focused a bit more on that. As you say. That's also the age where things like tennis and hockey and squash become harder and harder on the body and people just can no longer do it. And if they're looking for a competitive outlet, lots of those people actually do end up finding golf. And they're the ones, Brad, who tell you, I wish I'd found this game when I was 18. <laughs> I'd be so much oh, better absolutely. at it. <laughs> yeah, and it's, and it's those things that, like you say, some people are able to pick it up and continue to play across the lifespan, and that's brilliant. There's others, as you say, for whatever reason, it might be family or work or, or physical ability. They, they might go and play hockey, netball, cricket, football, whatever it might be. But there comes a point where for a lot of people, those sports, they're not able to physically complete them anymore. As much as they would like to do it, their brain says yes, but their body yeah. unfortunately says no. Right. Um, and and I think that's the group and our, and our research identified that, that 
golf, if you come from a sports background, you were talking earlier about you, you don't know what comes next or you're always hoping that the next shot is going to be something you've never played before or something you might have seen on TV and think, actually, I, I could probably have a go at this. That's that's the hook, I think, for those that are playing golf regularly is, is that if you do get hooked and you think, maybe maybe today's the day, mm-hmm. maybe today's not the day, but you, you could have had a, a shocking round, but somehow on the 16th or 17th it all comes back together and you think, actually, this game isn't so bad, I'm going to come back and do it another day. Or you just have one shot that keeps bringing you back. And I think that's, as you were saying before, that's something that's almost unique to golf that our, our participants were telling us they could stand on a hole that they've seen people play. You know, you take the example from Bonnie Doon over the weekend that you could you could take a drive up there and, and stand on some of those holes and see some of the shots that, you know, locally our best players have tried over the weekend. You can go up there and say, actually, I can stand on this tee and try and play that same shot. I don't know of many other sports in the world that you can actually do that. It's unlikely that any of us are going to go and stand on centre court at, at Wimbledon or Roland Garros or, you know, go to an Olympic pool and try and swim 50 metres against some of the world's best. But in golf, you can do it. With the handicap system and the accessibility of golf, you can go and play um, against some of the world's best or test yourself against some of the world's best and see if you can actually replicate those shots. I can't think of any other the sport in the world that allows you to do that. Yeah, there's, there's no there's, programs in tennis, is there? No, no that's true. <laughs> for a reason. There's graduated uh, challenges in golf as well. Like the, you know, you've got those par fours that we saw, the short par fours that we saw at Bonnie Doon over the weekend. Uh, yeah, sure, the pros can go for those. And my own little academic study of how they did you sit on the go. tea making notes again? <laughs> I, did, I didn't did but I was I, weeks the other week informally I, I did a little bit of that but I, I just I've got this theory that when the pros go for the greens on those short par fours it it's most of the time they're missing wide and it's a terrible place to try and get up and down from like 10 meters wide left or right of one of those greens good short par fours that's what good short do. par fours yeah as opposed to 10 meters short if you've laid up it's an, it's one of the easiest shots on the course, and and I, my informal observation was that a lot of players made birdie from just short of the green. To put a you lot of players p- made bogey from the sides <laughs> of the green. The of your- yeah, yeah. To put yep. you in the picture here, Brad, at the Australian <laughs> Open at the Lakes a few years ago, the thirteenth hole there, which is quite controversial, it's a short downhill par four, which is drivable but deadly either side. As like was it? It's a controversial hole, but he stood on the tee. How long did you spend standing on that tee, noting what players hit and what their final score? Not, not long enough to be weird. <laughs> 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 the nerd but, uh, in him was, I was just noting, like going but for I the green and the that's results. The thing, isn't it? That if if that's something that you really enjoy, you go and stand next. And you know, body dude is a classic example. And a lot of the Australian tournaments where we took the ropes away, mm. which is fantastic. So you actually can get in behind and see the process that a professional golfer goes through in trying to work out distance and taking into effect the wind. And you're playing on links, so you've got to take into account that it's going to bounce on rather than you know, just hit the green and stop like US or something like that, that you go away from there thinking, well, you know, these people hit driver, these people hit a hybrid, these guys hit and girls hit five iron. And then you, you walk away and you go, actually, I'd probably hit five iron myself there and try and lay up. And, and the results would be quite interesting that there'd be more birdies and pars, I suspect, by doing that than pulling driver and trying to knock it on the green. Indeed. And on interesting It is holes. one of those sports that you can do that. And, that, and again, I come back to my point, there's – there's no others that I can think of that actually allow you to do that, whether it's private or public. 
you can stand on those tees that you've watched the world's best and go through that process yourself um, and and try and emulate or or do better in some instances. The, The old course is probably the greatest example. If you've played the old course, you really have walked in the footsteps of champions. That's right. And there's these graduated challenges all throughout the course. Like, the, you know, if you're hitting at a certain distance, there's a challenge for you at that distance. If there's a different challenge and penalty equation at every distance, you're hitting the ball at the old course. And, uh, yeah, that, I think that's what's interesting. And there's all these games within a game. Games within a game, that's right. It's, it's, endless. it's a mental exercise, isn't it? Right that's from right. The start to the- and those hooks we're talking about happen at many levels as well. Like, there's the hook of, can I hit the next shot well? Can I make a good score on this hole? Can I make a good little stretch of holes? Can I make a good hole? Uh, can, can I make a good score for this round? Can I have, uh, you know, back up my form from the last round? It's yeah. Matt Day's <laughs> thing that he told you. It starts with shot euphoria, then yeah. hole euphoria, then round euphoria. Round That's euphoria. how people That's get right. hooked into right. golf. And once you've had that, you've got a, you've got yourself, you've got yourself a golf. Some really strong and really important points being made here by Brad, and let's hope that those messages are penetrating the halls of power where real decisions are being made about real golf courses. Now, at the very top of the show, I mentioned the name Bryson DeChambeau, perhaps the most polarising figure in the game right at this moment. Now, whether you're a fan of the man or his game or neither but you can't help but admit you like the way he looks on course, then now is the time to get yourself to thegolfsociety.com.au where you'll find a full range of the latest Puma, apparel and shoes as worn by Beefy Bryson as he's come to be known. How about that for a segue, folks? Pretty good, don't you reckon? The Golf Society carries the most sought-after brands in the game, including Jay Lindeberg, Travis Matthew and Under Armour, to name just a few, and they always have the very latest styles available to make sure that you look good on course. But the best thing, as a Talk and Golf listener, take 20% off all their prices just by using the code TG at checkout. That's thegolfsociety.com.au. Now back to Brad Stenner. The other thing I think, Brad, and just to finish up on this, I want to get back to the golf and health study because we've kind of drifted <laughs> off into a bunch of golfers talking about golf, preaching to the converted. Um, but in terms of golf and going out to the golf, I reckon, Adrian, you can take a non-golfer, to the golf, a skeptic even mm-hmm. who's watched golf on television and has decided it is boring, quote unquote. Take them to the golf course, let them stand behind the player and see the reality of what these guys are doing, the distances, the wind, the changes in terrain, and even non-golfers will go, ooh, when they see a pro hit a shot from 250 yards and hit it onto the green to a tiny little target that's not much bigger than the ball. Once you're in person – you can appreciate some of that much better. If we could get more non-golfers to golf, we'd probably do the game a whole lot of favours. Yeah, and all the shots around the green. It's like a trick shot watching them Absolutely play around the green. Absolutely. They're not even thinking about jumping <laughs> it into the bunkers. <laughs> but I do remember a case exactly. <laughs> Sorry, just to put you in the picture, Brad, at that same tournament at the Lakes, the new ninth hole and uphill par three, there's got like a lion's mouth bunker in the front of it, and one of the pros had come up short. The pin was over the bunker, and he just pitched it over. And Adrian looked at me, and he said, he wasn't even thinking about that bunker because all Adrian and I could think about was, well, well, imagine thinning it into that bunker or chunking it into that bunker, then you'd really have a problem. He wasn't even thinking about it, was he, like? Yeah. Oh, that's right. But it's funny, a little, like, a decade before that, or even longer, perhaps, um, I, I was at the lakes watching the Australian Open. It must be many years before that because Wayne Riley figures in this story. But uh, I was with a school friend of mine who had played a little bit of golf but wasn't a very enthusiastic golfer. But he was out there because, you know, I think you know, we were just mates and we're having fun. And on the eighth, the par five there, Wayne Riley hit it in a greenside bunker for two. 
and then hold the bunker shot for an eagle. And there was tremendous excitement about it. And it was an incredible shot as well. And my mates turned to me and, and gone, this is fantastic. This is the best sports thing I've ever been to. Like, it's just uh, the thrill of the excitement. And he was racing up to the next tee to watch what, what's he going to do on the next hole. You know, it was tremendous. Well, see, golf on television. He's a, he's a very keen golfer now. Keen golfer now. Golf on television is all 42 inches, isn't it? It's on your 42-inch flat screen and they're close up on the ball. And it just doesn't look that impressive when they chip it from the side of the ground or the bone. When you're there and you see the size of the hole, the size of the ball and everything in between, you see it actually happen. It's pretty amazing stuff. Brad, back to golf and health. What's, tell us more about this golf and health initiative because, of course, everything that you've been doing over here, as I understand it, I don't think you've had any funding for it. You've sort of been doing it out of your commitment to the game in some ways as a as a contribution to golf. Am I right about that? Yeah, it's. I have done. It, it was part of my PhD that recently you finished in 2019 and, and it is unfunded projects here in, in Australia. We do have a little bit of funding coming from the RNA, which is brilliant to support uh, Andrew Murray and his team in the UK. But it, it is unfunded at the moment and, and we are endeavouring to find funding, but it, it is tricky to find funding for research in a game that has different perceptions from the general public. So if you perhaps ask for research into Australian rules football or tennis or swimming, it's not easy to find funding, but it, it's certainly much harder to find funding in golf, and I think that does come down to the perception around golfers and golf in general having lots of money and lots of funds to, to spread around. But we are, as you said earlier, golf is really on the front foot here of demonstrating its contribution to individuals and the community. So uh, it, is, it is leading the way in trying to understand, not just for older golfers, and, and I chose to focus on golfers as it is the number one sport, but really focusing on the contribution, the broader contribution to health and well-being for those that participate. So it is an avenue that we are wanting to look at more and also start to evaluate some of the programs that uh, Golf Australia and other individual clubs are running. And one of the ways that we, we can only do that is through through funding. Yeah, it's in, a lot of the funding for Golf Australia, at least, goes into them ensuring they've got a junior program. And we talked a bit about this already, but there's that golfer's journey of planting the seed. And it's a very important part of the golfer's journey to have played a little bit of golf because when you, you're not going to be too embarrassed when you come back into it, uh, when you're, you know, 45 or 50. Just understanding the language. That, that's uh, right. Anything. <laughs> and there's this whole intimidation thing with golf clubs as well, which is bad enough for juniors, but at least juniors. When they get to a certain level, a lot of the members will show interest in them and be encouraging, whereas as a 45 or 50-year-old trying to get into golf for the first time, nobody's interested in <laughs> No, <laughs> in that's you. exactly right. Nobody's showing any interest in you, and you're very lucky if you can find some friends who are going to be encouraging and, and bring you along with them. Um, and uh, that so it is, mu- it is very challenging for a 45, 55-year-old to get into golf for the first time, but yeah, Golf Australia does have a program now that targets that specifically, the Get Into Golf program. And uh, I think it's you know, a big part of that is is making golf feel a little bit more like 10-pin bowling or something where Welcome, it, it's just you can go in, you can hire a pair of shoes at the 10-pin yeah. bowling that's place. That's right. You don't need anything to Suddenly, get started. Yeah, that's right. Just an interest. You just turn up and you can yeah. just start rolling a ball down the thing and there's, you know, we need to work out a way to, to what are those those gutter guards or something yeah. that they put up and we, we need to work out what the gutter guards are for golf that allows people to make it less intimidating for them to get into it. 
I think you're right, Adrian, though, that this can happen at public golf courses or, you know, executive courses that might have lots of short par fours um, and perhaps a little bit easier par threes is, is that's an ideal place to start. You, you, for me, you know, standing on the first tee of a Saturday afternoon comp when you've got loads of people standing around, the last thing you want to do is hit it straight left or straight right in your first round um, because it actually takes there's, – there's too much stress, there's too much pressure. It takes the enjoyment away straight away. If you're standing on you know, a 400-metre par four not having played it before or only starting to, to learn the game, that's the last thing you want to experience, I would imagine. You want to go to a place that is perhaps not as difficult but is, is filled with people that have been there before, know what it's like standing on that first tee, hitting your first tee shot in a competition. And if it goes left or right, they turn and laugh, not at you but with you because we've all been there. Um, and I think that the public golf is an ideal place to welcome people who are new or are maybe interested but are not sure. Public golf courses are, are the ideal place for them to come. We can also try some of those novelty ideas. The place for big hole golf is not as some kind of um, saviour for private clubs wanting to attract it. It is a fantastic idea for beginners, as is, I think, pitch and putt. Uh, which you were talking about earlier, Brad, where you sort of started that notion of pitch and putt, particularly in urban areas, it makes sense to have pitch and putt or even putting courses potentially. The problem with all of that is barely any golfers know those things exist. And, and like, reject no, them. somebody who's not a golfer isn't even going to know that that's a better place for them to go to. And, of course, golfers reject them. It's not proper golf. Yeah, golfers reject Nine them. holes isn't proper golf. That's it's right. got to be 18 holes. It's got to be competition. There's a lot of stuff in. And, and non-golfers see that and they assume that, oh, I better go to this club and pay this membership fee. And then what are you stuck with if you're a complete beginner? You've, you've suddenly paid a few thousand bucks to join a club. You might only have Saturdays that you can play. And you're forced to play in the comp straight away. Like that's pretty tough. That's that's a really oh, harsh initiation to golf. And so you've got to try and find afternoons where you can slip out in the course and practice and stuff. Yeah. There's there's loads of internal issues we need to sort out. Something that I found interesting in 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 the studies, Brad, and you can tell me whether I'm right about this. Was my inclination? I think it said it somewhere, and I can't find it again now, of course, because I want to. I want to. So that's of course never going to happen. <laughs> the the notion that whilst the bulk of golfers uh, statistically are older, are over 55, the bulk of those started the game when they were younger. They're long-term players. Am I right about that? Absolutely. Our, our research really indicates that the or the nationwide survey that we sent out with the help of GA, which explored the reasons why and, and the relatively relative importance of the reasons why people play golf, was that they did start when they were younger. They may have gone away, uh, work, had a family, um, they've had other commitments, but they come back 20, 30, 40 years later. So they've had a taste somewhere. Like you said, my, my first taste was, was through my grandfather playing on a little par three course, went away due to other sports and other commitments, but was able to come back much later on. So it is one of those games that when you have a taste younger, or when you're younger, I should say, that people tend to come back um, when, when they can. And then that's when they start to think, oh, actually, you know, a different friend network, a different community network, different and, and um, types of social support become more important that the golf and the golf club is the vehicle that allows them to get that support. So it is one of those sports where um, you, you can go away for 20, 30 years, sometimes longer, but it is there for when you want to come back to it, really. Your short game uh, will be and, short. And, and to it doesn't business. matter, physical... Um, 
capabilities or others. It's always there that you know you can pick up a golf club, jump on a, a public course or a private club if that's what you're interested in, and, and come back to it um, when when other commitments allow. Uh, and that's when we find that the physical exercise, as we were talking about earlier, the physical exercise isn't as important at that time of their life. The social networks, the community support, the mental health uh, issues become more important for those as they get older and they were the most important factors in the end around why people continue to play golf in an Australian population, mm. along with some of the things that, you know, golf is just good fun and that that notion of you're never going to quite master it. There's always something there that can, makes us come back next week or wants us to go back to the, the practice range during the week or something like that. But there's even when you walk off and you've had a great round, you think, oh, you know, I might have missed a putt or two that may have made it even better or next week is always going to be better. So there's always that carrot somewhere that says, you know, I'm going to keep doing this and I'm, I'm going to try and keep improving and I'm going to try and keep getting better uh, that you can continue to, to do as you get older. I was interested in some of the, one, the report in particular about the health uh, benefits of golf and that uh, was interested that golfers on average I think you found were more obese than the rest mm -hmm. of the population but that wasn't a factor once you'd controlled for other other elements if I if I read that correctly is that right yeah so it, it, our initial look at the data did show that the golfers are more likely to be obese um, than others but in our data set, that was more likely to be related to age. So as we get older, we're more likely to um, put on a few extra kilos. So, uh, so when we control for age, it was that effect was due to age as opposed to playing golf. Some of the really positive things that came out of, of playing golf is that we golfers are at lower risk of some chronic diseases, uh, you know, diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, uh, and also are less likely to experience um poor mental health as a result of playing golf or it's associated with playing golf. One of the things we really would like to do is follow golfers over a longer period of time so we can start to see the, the causal nature of playing golf, so whether it actually directly relates to improvements in cardiovascular health or the risk of uh, some chronic diseases or improvements in mental health. What we've got in the data at the moment is very cross-sectional that allows us to show associations but doesn't allow us to show changes over time and that's really the, the the key aspect of the next phase of golf and health research is to actually get people earlier on and try and track their health changes over a period of time so that we can start to see does playing golf lead to improvements in in these factors over time yeah there's a uh, a case that you can be made isn't there especially when you've got some of that longitudinal data about the long-term benefits of, of exercise and certain forms of exercise like golf, that government investing in those things is actually uh, greatly reducing investment in other areas like healthcare. So it's a net financial gain yeah. for the public as a, That's right. as a whole. You might be paying more over here, but you're actually paying less Same overall. So it's further down the track. And, and, so, and I think one of the issues with that, whether it's government funding or even you know private health funds and things like that, is you don't see the results for such a prolonged period of time. Right. So 
by engaging in regular physical activity and, and we encourage people to do that through playing golf is that you may not see the returns for 15, 20, 30 years as people get older. A lot of the studies and you know, the, what they're looking for is perhaps really short-term health benefits that we can say, yes, you engage in this six-week program and this reduces your risk of heart disease, you know, blood pressure, cholesterol, whatever it might be over a really short period of time. What we're suggesting here, that engagement in lifelong physical activity absolutely reduces the, the health cost burden later on in life, um, but it does take a long period of time to start to demonstrate those longitudinal effects. Uh, and now that's where we need to go to next, is it's not enough to go to government and health providers and others and say, we think there is an association between playing golf and um you know, lower risk of heart disease or whatever it might be. We're at a point now where we need to have intervention-based studies which really show that causal relationship rather than just associations. Start, start with Spirit of St Andrews and Dr mm-hmm. McKenzie. Send people out of his office, say, go and play golf, and he would never see them again. Their health oh, would improve yep. markedly straight over yeah, time. I mean, There's your study. <laughs> walking and – yeah, well, walking alone actually is a is sort of a miracle health intervention uh, if it was if it was done more widely. Uh, in fact, I've got – so I've got a question for you. Uh, Brad, I sometimes feel like my game of golf on a Saturday is a net negative for me. <laughs> this might be more personal than general, I suspect. Yes, after yeah. I've turned up and I, you know, I'll have a, a couple of beers and I'll eat too much and I'll, I'll go and sure I'm walking 18 holes, but uh, you know I'm continuing to consume all sorts of stuff as I go around. I might even yeah. leave the golf course feeling a little bit bloated and wondering if it's all been worth it. Is, uh, is, are there I'm sure any- there's a golf issue here, uh, Logue. There might, might be a personal issue here for you to think about. I'm not sure it's the golf that's uh, it, the problem. Do you have a point, were, though? Were you able to control for, right. like, alcohol use or, or that sort of stuff? And in all seriousness, we all, most of us do associate golf with a post-round beer. You know, you'll often hear it, oh, that's the only reason I come is to have the beer afterwards. That is true, isn't it, Brad? Yeah. There are- and it's something we don't acknowledge certain- perhaps enough in our, uh, yeah, absolutely. In our, our culture, culture in Australia. Of- and lifestyle. Thoughts on that, Brad? Yeah, I think you're right that, you know, the 19th hole is is a classic for, you know, you've, you've had a shocking day on the course, you go up with your mates and, and tell stories about how good someone else played and how poorly you played and, and it tends to involve a beer or two. I think a, a beer or two in, in moderation after the round of golf, you know, is, is not an issue. I think we do have to be mindful, though, of some of the – the issues that might involve whether it's alcohol use or whether it's drinking on the course, you know, you have the the cart come around and all of a sudden you think, oh, I'm playing poorly, I'll have a pie and a chocolate bar or something like that um, as, you know, halfway around fuel. But it is it is something we have to be mindful of. But at the same time, we do have to acknowledge that, you know, playing one round of golf for some people or most people actually meets or exceeds the the goal of moderate to vigorous physical activity each week. So, I agree, Adrian. You, you have to weigh that up in terms of, you know, do I have one extra beer or do I have a, you know, a chocolate bar halfway round or something? But from a golf point of view, there's no doubt that playing golf helps everyone meet or exceed the the target moderate to vigorous physical activity of 120 to 150 minutes per week of, of you know, we're not talking high intensity exercise, but moderate to vigorous where you do start to feel it at the end of the round or. Um, something like that. That's the level of exercise that we're all aiming for. 
what Brad's trying to say there is stop making a pig of yourself on mm-hmm. Saturdays, yep. control yourself a little bit, and you'll walk away net positive, and you'll feel better for it. Yeah, I'm, I'm taking away that pies aren't health food. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> Even vegetarian pies don't qualify <laughs> as health food, should you do. It strikes me, Brad, just while we're talking, there are a couple of things to finish up. We're, we're approaching time. We really should wrap it up. Do we overlook sometimes? You mentioned there that notion of short-term gains, a six-week program produced these results. The danger, of course, of six-week programs, and we all know people who've done this, and most of us have done it ourselves, you join a gym and you're all enthusiastic and you last six weeks and then you stop. Yep. It tends not to be the case with golf, does it? It does tend to become, I'd be interested in what the numbers were, but it tends to become a lifestyle choice for life for a good percentage of people, I would think. Absolutely. The, as I said, the large-scale survey, which was the largest-scale uh, survey that anyone has done with the golf population looking at motivations, it really was that once you've started playing, you tend to play not for six months or one year. You tend to play for 10, 20, 30 years. And that really is um, a real positive for golf. It's that it's sustainable. So We've all been to the gym, you know, your New Year's resolution is that you're going to go to the gym and suddenly after three or six months it starts to become all too hard or there's other things get in the way and your gym membership starts to drop off. Our look at the golf data says that people, once they take it up, do tend to play for a much longer period of time. Yes, they might come and go or they may not play as regularly as as perhaps others, but they do tend to play for a longer period of time. Now, golf is not unique in that. There's other sports that also enjoy that. But certainly a large percentage of people, once they take up the game of golf, continue to play. And it is, um, I think it's very much around that social nature of golf. Adrian, like you say, you've had a shocking game, um, but on Saturday afternoon you go up and you have a beer with your mates. And yes, you'll be annoyed at yourself, but you also can enjoy the fact and, and laugh it off with a group of mates um, after playing playing the game. I think that's what brings us brings us back, no matter whether you play well or poorly. Uh, that that's that keeps bringing us back, regardless of whether we actually feel we're getting the physical um, health benefits or not. They happen as a result of playing this great game. Um, in a social or, or community-based environment, it, it, it doesn't feel like you're exercising, even though you've been out there for four, four and a half hours, whatever it might be. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. There was that great story of the 95-year-old who played his last, last game at the Grange. Did you see the, the bike he was riding with the clubs on a trailer? He rode his push bike to the course? No, well, he didn't have his what? He, he, he rode his push bike to the he course. Everywhere. Yeah, he he's, uh, was a member at Grange up until the last little while where I am. Um, and you'd see him quite regularly. He lives local, and he'd have his he'd have his push bike and his his uh, bike, sorry, his golf buggy attached to the back yep. through some homemade engineering little thing that he did. And he would cycle to and from the golf course uh, every time he played. Kevin's story is a is a brilliant story. That he'd, he'd been a member there. Um, for decades and decades. We can't expect non-golfers to understand or know any of those things, can we, Brad? It's up to us in golf to tell those stories. And again, we come back to this issue. The three of us here are all in furious agreement, as are however many people listen to this podcast. We're kind of not the ones who need to hear it. We need to go the next step now, don't we? Which is my final question for you, Brad. You hinted at it a bit earlier, I guess. You need to sort of do a study that you can present to government as hard scientific fact that golf is sort of good for the population. What would you like to see happen next? And have you got any thoughts on the best way forward for golf to achieve that? It is, of course, a disparate mishmash of governing bodies and authorities from the professional to the amateur 
half the time we can't get along with each other or share similar goals. How do we as a game come together? And what role do individual golfers have to play in this as well? Yeah, I think it is, a, like you said, it is a mishmash of uh, organisations that, for the most part, have similar interests, but they come across, come across quite differently. You've got the, the pro groups who are very much around promoting their, their tournaments and their big events around the world to those that, as we evidenced over the weekend, that it is, was a professional tournament, but at Bonnie Doon, everyone was there, men, women, uh, kids, volunteers, everyone walking around the course, which was a great experience for all that, that got to go there. I, I do think we need to, as an industry, whether that's you know the bigger picture governing bodies or those of us that just love the game, need to be on the front foot of demonstrating how good our game is and the benefits of our game, perhaps rather than reacting to the story that came from, from Sydney the other week, is that we're starting to build some evidence about how great our game is that we can show to others that are not necessarily involved in the game. I think that's the next step for us at an individual level is actually be on the front foot and have these really positive stories on the front page, mm. not necessarily in reaction to something that's happened. Yeah. Um, you know, Bryson DeChambeau, we, we could talk for you know, years about what he's doing for the game of golf. Some people really like that. Some people don't really like that. But it is about us as, as an industry embracing these things that, you know, we'd never thought that someone could hit at 350 metres, but here he is doing it, um, is actually getting on the front foot and saying, yep, Bryson can do that at a pro level. But these are all the other things that are happening at an amateur level or a community level that are just as important as someone hitting at 350 or um, whatever it might be at, at that elite level. So I do think it is on us as individuals to actually make sure that golf is front and centre with really positive stories. Um, but then it, it, you know, it sounds like a, a cry for funding, but it, it is about some investment that is going to enable us to keep providing the evidence around golf and health and its contribution to society that will enable us to provide information. And I've talked us as academics to be able to provide information to people like yourselves and others that actually means that when you go out and make statements that you've got the evidence to back it up rather than just making statements that, you know, can be fobbed off or, or farmed off as saying, well, yeah, and, you know, and whatever. Fact, you've got nothing to back that up. The, the important stuff will actually happen behind the scenes, won't it, but not, certainly not on the front pages of the papers. That's the titillating stuff. Somebody writes a column that says golf's for rich old white guys. What, is, what, 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 did, what did Nikki Gemmell say? She recycled the Gladwell line guys. of crack cocaine for you old white guys. You keep recycling it now. That's on well, you. Well, I can't – well, it's so <laughs> – the more I think about it, the more offensive it becomes. So it, it's, like, it's like the Andrew Wakefield of, of podcasts, that, that thing. That, who's, who's Andrew Wakefield? Andrew Wakefield's the bloke who – what are you talking? Publish that ridiculous article about vaccines in the the Lancet, like well, it's almost like twenty five years ago or something now, and it just sticks around. And that, that Malcolm Gladwell thing was similarly. He's yeah, a genius, a, isn't he? Yeah, you're right. He's got me. I'm going to stop saying it. He's got me in now. He's got me doing. He's got his you. Bidding. He's got you I'm repeating doing his thing. Bidding. And the the study that he did, or the the commentary that he did, was on such a small segment of golf, oh, and it's being applied to so much absurd. more than what it was. <laughs> that's and exactly right. It, all of the. The insight that he had on it was pretty questionable. And his whole 10,000 hours thing's a load of crap anyway. So. Are we anti-global? I'm, an, I'm, I'm anti-global. You're anti-global? You're out? Yeah. You're out yeah. of the yeah. yeah, Fantastic. Uh, the truth being, though, Brad, of course, that those things are going to and should happen 
uh, at a different level than in the mainstream press, which is what sort of gets us talking when it appears in there. The couple of pieces we've seen in the last few months, which we've responded to, uh, they're not the places for these things to happen. The, the, the Clover Moors and, and people who are anti-golf have a responsibility to look at the whole picture, don't they? Uh, and they need, that, we, we need can, to have something. We can have that discussion. I think we need to have that discussion with everything on the table rather than just a, a headline which might which doesn't reflect the game of golf. We know that. But let's have that discussion. You, you, know, you mentioned the old course, and I've been very fortunate to go there a couple of times. Sunday it's closed and you have families having picnics and people walking the dog and, you know, suddenly kids are building sandcastles in some of the, the bunkers there. It's an unbelievable experience that you go there that is a shared facility. People look at the old course and think, oh, that's, you know, exclusive. It's the RNA. It's a public court, uh, park on a Sunday yeah. that, you know, you can do these things. I think there is opportunity for us to think more creatively about how we can use some of these green spaces on afternoons or evenings or, you know, maybe one day a week, whatever it might be, that encourages people to come on a golf course. They might have a picnic, throw the frisbee around, whatever it might be, and then think, hey, I mean, I, I might like to have a go at that game. And something that they've never experienced before. So it, it does, it is something that we need to think about as well, rather than just trying to change this perception um, that other people might have of us. Well, Brad, we better be careful. They might decide, like at Northcott, oh, this is really nice. We'd like to have mm. this not as a golf course, but <laughs> as a public park instead that we can just walk around whenever we want to. So there's lots of uh, lots of issues arising. You're doing your bit, Brad, and we thank you for that. And we thank you for taking some time to chat today. It's been fascinating to talk to you, and I'm sure it won't be the last time we talk, and I hope that you do get some funding that there is more research to come because, as you say, it is important that the discussion be had with all of the facts on the table and with people <laughs> – acting in good faith. Matt Goggin said that to me in an interview a couple of weeks ago and it stuck with me. It's a, you can have conversations with people who are acting in good faith, but if they just come from a position of golf is bad and they're not open to anything else, then there's an issue. And the same with people who just say golf is good. All golf is good and we should have all golf. Mm-hmm. That's a yep. preposterous position to take as well. So as long as we're all acting in good faith, uh, I think golf can continue to contribute to society. But we thank you for your time today, Brad. Really good to talk to you. Great ride on Adrian. Thanks very much. And, uh, yeah, look forward to catching up at another time. That'll be great. We might come to your very underrated golf city there, Adelaide. That would be nice. We don't talk enough about golf in Adelaide. There's some magnificent uh, courses over there. You're very lucky uh, indeed. Adrian, great to talk to you as well, mate. Thank you for coming in. Always good to have you on board. Thanks very much, Rod. At least I could do. Episode 67 of the Good Good Golf Podcast, done and dusted. We will be back, of course, to do it again next week with Episode 68, the Good Good Golf Podcast.